Amen. Thank you, Alan. Now, before I begin my formal presentation, and I'm saying that because I really want you to get into the frame of mind as to how this uh, lecture was first presented. So before I begin my formal presentation, I want to remind you of the specific part of our Constitution with which we are concerned this morning and at that time as well. In fact, it may be good for us to read this in unison. So it's on the screen. Please, let's read it together, beginning with the word, whereas. Ready? Whereas, and 81 years ago, the rediscovery of this family of islands, rocks and keys, heralded the rebirth of the new world, <clears throat> <clears throat> will be guaranteed by a national commitment to self-discipline, industry, loyalty, unity, and an abiding respect for Christian values and the rule of law. Now know ye, therefore, we the inheritors and successors to this family of islands, recognizing the supremacy of God and believing in the fundamental rights and freedoms of the individual, do hereby proclaim in solemn praise the establishment of a free and democratic sovereign nation founded on spiritual values and in which no man, woman, or child shall ever be slave or bondsman to anyone of their labor exploit all their lives frustrated by deprivation and do hereby provide by these articles for the indivisible unity and creation under God of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. Beautiful words, aren't they? How many of you have actually read the Constitution? Shame on you. That's amazing. Not even a dozen Bahamians in this congregation have read the Bahamian Constitution. And yet we call ourselves Bahamian citizens. What do you think about that? By the way, we're going to be talking about those things this evening, so please come out. Remember now then, you are a part of the audience of the Colloquium 2000, and I am addressing presenting a formal lecture as to why I, as a Christian pastor and a Bahamian citizen, insist that those who are considering making amendments to our present constitution do not remove the phrase an abiding respect for Christian values from our constitution. In other words, right now, I've just made you eight years younger. I'm going to give you the opening words as well, so you have a feel for this. This is my introduction. I am thankful to the COB for spearheading this colloquium that is designed to help shape an agenda for the Bahamas for 2000 and beyond. It will prove to be, I am sure, a major benchmark for the beginning of a truly new Commonwealth of the Bahamas 
in which all of its citizens have an opportunity to voice their concerns. Whether they do so or not, of course, depends upon the individual citizen. I, for one, have chosen to grasp such a momentous occasion, and I'm deeply thankful for an opportunity to do so such as this. My task, in the words of one of our Eurydite converts, or conveners that should be, is to present a philosophical perspective on our topic, which they have named the church, state, society, and constitution. Of course, upon being informed of the breadth of my designated topic, I thought that I would have at least an hour to give, at least an interview or an overview, or perhaps even to have an opportunity to have a workshop on the topic. To say the least, therefore, I was completely dismayed when Mr. Bo, the chairman, informed me that I had been generously allotted a time of 15 minutes for my presentation. That, of course, immediately limited the depth to which I could go into my presentation. Such restraints to a long way, such restraints rather, go a long way in causing heart attacks or serious nervous conditions for preachers such as I. However, in the spirit of the event, I will do my utmost to conform to the time requirements while striving diligently to maintain the intellectual height which our coordinators so earnestly desired and asked for. Of course, I do so also to gain the widest acceptance of all. Let me interject to say here, I went on then to give an overview of this presentation. And I took a little more than 15 minutes, but I didn't finish it anyway. So now you will hear the rest of the story. Consider with me then, first of all, the inherent Christian factor in Bahamian history and in its constitution. I believe that is quite evident that our constitution reflects a Bahamian Christian ethos. From the very beginning of our history, whether technically true or not, Bahamians have considered their homeland to be a Christian nation. Undoubtedly, it was this inherent felt conviction that motivated the framers of our constitution to emphasize within its preamble that government is to have an abiding respect for Christian values and rule of law and to recognize the supremacy of God and that they would, to quote the final sentence of the preamble, hereby provide by these articles for the indivisible unity and creation under God of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. End of quote. Now, abiding in this text means to be steadfast, enduring, tenacious, persistent, permanent, and lasting. To recognize means to admit, to endorse, and to honor or pay homage to. Understood in these terms, I submit that if such references are removed from our Constitution, as is being suggested by some, 
It would make the entire original Bahamian Constitution of 1973 a worthless document because it would rip out its very heart. This is so because it is quite evident that the Constitution upon which the Commonwealth of the Bahamas draws its lifeblood was and is a product of a Christian ethos. This was this was a clear acknowledgement by the framers of our Constitution that God stands over and above the nation and that in the words of Peter Marshall, the highest role a nation can play is to reflect God's righteousness in national policy at all times. End of quote. Bahamians can join with another American who stated regarding the birth of the United States of America, quote, Seldom, if ever, in the history of the world has a nation been born in a more religious atmosphere. Speaking of America, end of quote. I would dare to say, however, that the Commonwealth of the Bahamas is an exception to that pronouncement. There is no such thing as a valid history of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas and its culture apart from religion in general and from Christianity in particular. This Christian ethos is in actual fact the foundation and background for the framers of our Constitution. However, I hastily add, while our Constitution rightly assures that the basic religious freedom of both the church and the citizen rests in the separation of church and state, it most certainly does not divorce religion and in particular Christianity from the state or government. Clearly. Not only does the Constitution of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas recognize God and his transcendent authority, but it also guarantees that the Bahamian citizen has every right to the free exercise of his religion without undue interference from the government. Any future reframers or reformers of our Constitution, therefore, must always bear in mind the vital historical role the church has played in the framing of both the English and American constitutions, which of course have also greatly influenced our constitutions as Bahamians. Legal scholars, historians, politicians, and clergymen are consistent in their conclusion that the political and legal institutions of the U.S. had a religious base and that colonial government as well as the present constitutional system of both England and the United States were modeled after church polities, church government. For instance, Kemp Morton, a historian, writes this, quote, The presbyteries and synods of pre-revolutionary times exhibited a pattern of a union in central organization without any loss of fundamental rights. It was from this church structure that the formula coordinating the large and the small states into one union came. The College of Cardinals of the Catholic Church formed the pattern for the Electoral College for electing the President and Vice President of the United States. Do you see what is being stated here? It is the background of the church government from which both the U.S. and English governments base their structure. 
I say again, therefore, to remove any reference to Christianity from the Constitution of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas would be not only to rip up its historical constitutional roots, but also to rip out its very heart because it is unquestionably the product of a Christian ethos, a Christian ethos that still exists today. This leads then into our further consideration of the relationship between the church and the state. I submit to you that there are two distinct kingdoms on earth, the church and the state or government, and they have two different but compatible and supported roles to play. Jesus himself describes for us the biblical relation between church and state or government that still holds true today. Here, the biblical record as given by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 21. So the spies questioned Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar, or government, we could say, or not? Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. Notice, Jesus very clearly states that some things are within the jurisdiction of Caesar or government, but just as real, some things are not. In other words, he very clearly limits the power and responsibility of government. He also makes it clear that it is God's law that judges Caesar's and not vice versa, and therefore that God's laws or standards are not only a higher standard than the states or government, but also they are more authoritative and binding upon the citizens. This seems to clearly indicate that as far as God is concerned, there are two distinct kingdoms on earth, and that they are both and they both have a different but compatible and supportive roles to play. Christians throughout the centuries have recognized this but have had different perspectives on this. In other words, they have interpreted this relationship between the state and the church differently. This has resulted in different responses to the Christian or the church's participation in or attitude toward established government interjection. In other words, what I'm trying to show here is it's our view of the relationship between the church and state that determines how much we participate in either, especially government. One such view is that the church has power over the state. Using Matthew 16, 19 as their basis, some have concluded that the church is in control of the state. Speaking to Peter in the presence of the apostles, Jesus declares in this passage, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some believe that Emperor Constantine gave much of the Roman Empire over to the Church of Rome, acting upon this concept that both political and spiritual power rested in the church. Believe it or not, there's still some who believe that. Anyone getting away? This view, initially, this view initially proposed by Augustine holds that God empowered the church to rule over both the Christian and non-Christian citizen as well as the state, to which the Christian must also be subject. 
In, actual, in actuality, this comes pretty close to the church and state being one, with the church having the greater power. Under this view, there is no problem with Christians or pastors, priests or whatever, to be involved in politics. In fact, that is a given under this view. But there's another view of the relation of church and state. And that is that the state is a part of the devil's world system. Government is a part of the devil's world system. And therefore, Christians must totally separate themselves from any involvement in it at all. Christians under this view cannot vote, cannot hold political office, or even go to war. They are to obey the state generally, but the state has no final authority over them, even as the church has no authority over unbelievers. They are a part of the devil's kingdom, as far as this view is concerned. On one side, they say, God rules over the church, which in turn rules over the believer. On the other side, totally apart from the spiritual kingdom, was Satan. He rules over the state, which in turn rules over the kingdom of unbelievers. There is a total separation, in other words, between these two kingdoms. Now, many who hold to this view refrain from any involvement in anything that has to do with government or politics. They don't vote. They don't pledge allegiance to the flag. They don't join the police force or the defense force. And they probably would not have shared in this event to talk about the Constitution of the Bahamas because the state was totally apart from the church. A third view sees authority coming directly from God to the state rather than through the church and maintains that believers are citizens of both the state and the church. However, the state's authority, they say, is limited to that which God has given it. If it acts beyond this limitation, the believer is to resist and oppose any such laws by the state. They believe that the church is to transform the world, including government or the state, to do so according to biblical and Christian principles. In other words, they say, the church is to Christianize the world, including government, thus bringing the kingdom of the world into conformity with the kingdom of heaven. The state, in fact, is to help bring this about, they say. John Calvin attempted to put this concept into practice in Geneva for a while. That's Geneva Swedishman. He served both as a political and church leader for a while according to this principle. Under this view, God gives authority directly to the church and the state. But he does so as different entities. However, while the church can use the state to carry out its responsibility, the state cannot use the church to carry out its responsibility. That's the view of this position. A fourth view <clears throat> of the relationship between the state and church is that of Martin Luther, who is a recognized leader of the Protestant Reformation. Although similar to the view of John Calvin, which we just quoted, Luther differed in that he did not believe that the church had the authority to impose its belief upon the unbeliever 
or the state, or that the church should use the state or government to help Christianize unbelievers. He would only argue for Christian standards in policies if they could be arrived at by common sense apart from biblical revelation. I hope you come out tonight because we want to talk about some of these concepts. Luther's view would be diagrammed in the same fashion as Calvin's with the exception that he would eliminate that arrow that gives the church the right to use the state to impose Christian beliefs upon the believer, or rather, upon the unbeliever, or for that matter, upon government as well. Now here is my personal view. My personal view is a modification of the Lutheran view. While agreeing wholeheartedly with him that Christians cannot impose Christian beliefs upon the non-Christians, which by the way, some Christians believe wholeheartedly that we can do that, that we can demand that unbelievers live like Christians, which is really silly or foolish in my opinion, because if they can live like Christians, why evangelize them? Anyway, that's getting away from it. My personal view is a modification of a Lutheran view. While agreeing wholeheartedly with him that Christians cannot impose Christian beliefs upon the non-Christian, I would not draw as sharp a distinction between faith and reason as he does, or as he did. In my opinion, one need not contradict the other. Christians should not be hesitant to appeal to biblical authority in calling for political governmental changes. Although we cannot demand that government assist the church in evangelization of the unbeliever, we can demand that it provides the same protection and security it provides for other citizens and institutions, such as free speech and the right to assemble for Christian and church-related purposes. That's my position. In summary, therefore, from a biblical perspective, I see the church and the states as being two divinely instituted Entities with two distinct purposes and functions. When both are operating according to biblical guidelines, they complement one another and accomplish God's sovereign overall purpose on earth. In other words, they, these two entities, are designed of God to be allies, not enemies, in accomplishing his purpose on earth. Sin, of course, entered and has distorted the application of this purpose to both the church and to government. That is, the church in its social and institutional role as both involved human beings. And you see, that's the problem with the world, human beings. The church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is commissioned to change the sinful nature of man from the inside through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If submitted to, the gospel causes Christian citizens to obey the laws of both God and man, and so avoid all acts of criminality or immorality. The state, on the other hand, is commissioned to use force to restrain the sinful behavior of both the carnal believer and the unbeliever that would cause disorder and chaos in a society. The church, however, is never to use such force to achieve its purpose of converting men and women. This truth is brought out very clearly in Romans chapter 13. 
immediately following the section that commands the state to use whatever force is necessary to curb sinful and criminal behavior in a society, even the ultimate force of capital punishment, the Holy Spirit admonishes the individual Christian to love his brother or sister. In other words, even though the state is commissioned to punish the offender of the law, and not necessarily or always to forgive such behavior, the Christian, on the other hand, is always to love, always to forgive such a person if wrongdoing is acknowledged. And so this introduces the vital but often overlooked concept of human nature and its impact upon the makeup of a particular form of government. And in my, in my opinion, as a humble theologian, I believe they must be kept in the forefront of the minds of future reformers or reframers of our Constitution. And so I want us now then to turn to consider the government and human nature. My thesis here is that every political theory rests upon a particular view of human nature. From a biblical perspective, it is impossible for a thinking thinker to think about government without thinking about human nature. That's the influence of Sila in that phrase. So, Christians have a mandate to help construct a workable government system with a realistic view of human nature. I'm trying to show the importance of Christian input into framing our constitution. To quote British historian Hugh Trevor Roper, a political theory which does not start from a theory of man is quite worthless. End of quote. Roper is correct in his assessment. From a biblical perspective, it is impossible for a thinking thinker, I say, to think about government without thinking about human nature. It is important to note that the Bible does not propose or endorse any specific political system including democracy. It does, however, provide a basis for Christians to evaluate the various political philosophies because it clearly delineates a view of human nature. Christians, therefore, have a basis for rejecting those political philosophies that start with and embrace an incorrect view of human nature. Due to this revelation, word of God, Christians have a mandate to help to construct a workable government system with a realistic view of human nature. I believe that the Bible describes two elements of human nature. This viewpoint, I believe, is, helping, is helpful for Christians to judge governmental systems. Because we are created in the image of God, according to Genesis 1, we are able to exercise such noble human traits as courage, judgment, compassion, forgiveness, and reason. However, we are also fallen creatures, according to Genesis 3. The human sinfulness then, this human the sinfulness, according to Romans 3, has therefore created a need to control evil and sinful human behavior. And God has ordained government to be that agent. 
In the creation, God ordained government as the means by which human beings and angels and angelic hosts are ruled. The rest of the created order is governed by instinct, according to Proverbs 30. It's governed by God's providence. Insect colonies, for instance, may show a level of order, but this is due merely to a genetically controlled instinct. Human beings, and this is the point, on the other hand, are created in the image of God, and therefore they are responsible to the volitional command of God. We are created by a God of order and law. Therefore, we also seek order through governmental structures. This seems to indicate that the basis for civil government is rooted in our created nature. We are rational and volitional beings. We are not determined by fate, F-A-T-E, as the Greeks would say, nor are we determined by our environment, as the behaviors would say. We, as those who have been created in the image of God, have the power of choice. And because we have the power of choice, we can exercise delegated power over the created order. And so a biblical view of human nature requires a governmental system that acknowledges human responsibility. Are you following? However, it is important to note that while the source of civil government is rooted in human responsibility, the need for government derives from the need to control human sinfulness. I need to quote that. I need to repeat that. It is important to note that while the source of civil government is rooted in human responsibility, the need for government derives from the need to control human sinfulness. In other words, if none of us sinned, we would not need to be controlled. As we've shown before, God ordains civil government to restrain evil according to Genesis 9. We cannot consider anarchy a viable option. Why? Because all have sinned are in need of external control to keep down our sinfulness. An emphasis on the, previous, on the prevention of and punishment for lawbreakers must therefore of necessity be a primary focus of any biblically validated government and reflected accordingly in its constitution. That's an important statement today, so let me read it again, please. An emphasis on the prevention of and punishment for lawbreakers must therefore of necessity be a primary focus of any biblically validated government and reflected accordingly in its constitution. Now, if that were true, how would you judge and determine the biblical correctness of our government? A Christian view of human nature gives us a basis by which to judge political philosophies, I say. Christians must therefore reject political philosophies that ignore human sinfulness. The Christian view of government is based upon a balanced view of human nature. It recognizes both human dignity, we are created in the image of God, and human depravity, we are sinful individuals. Because both grace and sin operate in government, 
we should be neither too optimistic nor too pessimistic. We should view governmental affairs with a deep sense of biblical realism. In fact, most early political theorists in Britain and the United States accepted this balanced view of human nature. It's amazing. Edmund Burke, for instance, an English Christian, developed his description of, that gov of what government should be in his reflections on the French Revolution based upon a balanced view of human nature. So through, although many were not Christians, they were frequently influenced by the Christian ethos or milieu. In other words, although the unbelievers were present and didn't ascribe to Christianity, they were nonetheless affected by it because they lived in the midst of those who lived Christianity. James Madison, well-known American politician, believed in this balanced view of human nature also. He asked the following question in the Federalist Papers, and I quote, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Did you get that? And so as there is a degree of depravity in mankind that requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. Framing a constitution, therefore, for a just government in the Bahamas requires a balanced view, a balance of power that liberates human dignity and rationality and controls human sin and depravity. This must be reflected in constitution that is committed to respecting Christian principles. This leads into an understanding then of the moral basis of law, but we will consider that this evening. But I hope that you see the drift we're going here. There are two things that are involved in this idea of changing our constitution. If we take out the word Christian, abiding Christian principles, and simply put abiding religious principles, right away we take away all the impact and influence of Christianity. We just, we just take it out all together. Secondly, we must realize the important role we play as Christians in helping to frame a just constitution. Too many Bahamian Christians are not good citizens. All they think of is, I am a citizen of heaven, but they complain as on everything I've gone on earth. When, they have an, when we have an important role to play in shaping and framing what happens in this nation. And I trust that as we reflect on these things, that's why I invite you to come out this evening, because when we talk about recognizing the balance uh, uh, of the two elements of human nature, it has a direct bearing upon our government exercises 
its, its, its role in administering justice, how it punishes criminals. Today, that's one of the major problems in our society. Criminals are not being punished. In fact, there's a movement now that they shouldn't be punished. They should be rehabilitated. Now, we're going to see that that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture, basically speaking. I'm not saying that rehabilitation is wrong. I'm not saying that. Basically speaking, though, if we are going to recognize the biblical teaching concerning uh, the governmental use of its power to punish, we must see that it's only an effective government if it punishes correctly. If it doesn't, it is not a valid government or exercising of a governmental power. you understand what I'm saying? Because from a biblical view, the two primary reasons for the establishment of government is to punish the evildoer. Clearly taught. And to provide an opportunity for its citizens to live a peaceful lifestyle. If they, if they are the, uh, uh, unable to do this or are not doing it, then the government is not doing its work as it's divinely instituted. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the ones who are responsible in a nation to help bring this balance about are Christians. Because the Christians, because we have the Word of God and the Spirit living within us, are the only ones who have the true perspective on human nature and how it can be put under control. We also have the only perspective on what the church is here, all about, is here all about. We are here to not punish individuals. We are here to turn them to Christ. However, we are also here to emphasize that criminals are punished properly if they refuse to repent. We need to see the balance here. And so tonight we are going to continue the discussion and we hope we have enough time for us to ask questions and make comments. Please come out and uh, be a part of that because I believe this could be a very important, uh, this could be an important thing for us to, to consider at this time. Because we're all asking, what can I do? What can we do to help in these situations? I believe the word of God gives us direction if we are willing to accept it.